Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. Uh, so we are going through the book of Revelation. Matt has gone through a very big chunk of it, and we come to chapter 11 of Revelation. Uh, this is a highly discussed, highly theorized, highly controversial chapter in the book of Revelation. Uh, reason I picked it is because it's also one of the more known chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, one thing that's been entertaining to me as we read through the book of Revelation, it's John having to interpret a vision of something that happens at, at least thousands of years in the future. And Matt has kind of discussed how would you thousands of years ago translate some of the modern technologies that will exist at the end of times that he is seeing. And it's really made me reflect on a, a story that's famous from my times traveling to other countries. Uh, for those of you who know, I go to Ecuador pretty regularly. And Ecuador, most of the indigenous people there came to Christ through one group of five missionaries and their family that led them to Christ, um, the Nate St. Jim Elliott families. And how they made contact originally with the Weodani Indians who later accepted Christ is they would fly over and drop off gifts to these villages. And these indigenous people did not know what a plane was or anything of that nature. They referred to this plane as a giant would-be in the sky. And so every time they would talk about the Saint family and Jim Elliott who would fly over, they would say, this really loud, really large would-be is over our village. And look, there's a bucket coming down and it has chickens inside of it for us. And look, this would-be is back and it is bringing us blankets and towels and washing supplies. Look, the would-be has returned, the great would-be in the sky. And we see John talking about these things, and we don't know whether he's speaking about literal things and how he's observing them, or if he's speaking as someone thousands of years ago looking at modern technology like the great would be. And I've presented a, a picture on one of the next slides of the great would be that first made contact with the Wadani Indians and kind of sparked a revival in that community. So that to someone who has never seen technology, looks like a giant would-be in the sky. Um, so this chapter has three major events that take place in it. Um, the first one is we see the measuring of the temple. Uh, the second event is two witnesses come and present the gospel for three and a half years. And then the third event is the seventh trumpet plays. Um, these are all highly impactful events at the end of times. Um, but what's incredible about the book of Revelation is it has a time frame for it, and it's presented to us in the first chapter. So we're going to look at Revelations 1, verse 19. God commands John, Therefore write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. So the first chunk of Revelation, you know, is what was, and what was that John is referring to in Revelation 1 is that Christ came, he offered an atonement for our sins, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, rose from the dead to give us a path to eternity. 
what is, if you all remember in the next chapters, is the letters to the seven churches that we write. Um, one of the things that we've talked about in our small groups is kind of which one of these seven churches do you feel like is your church or you most closely identify, but that is what is. And we have now moved on to what will take place after this. We are moving now to your eschatology end times discussions. So we're gonna dive into Revelations now. Sorry, I keep saying it with an S because it just naturally is Revelations, but it's only one Revelation. It's not plural, there's no S. It's kind of, I was in the Marine Corps and Corps is spelled C-O-R-P-S. And so when you read it, you want to say corpse, but it's not, it's just core revelation. Anyways, <laughs> Revelation 11, one and two. Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod. With these words, go and measure the temple of God and all the altar and count those who worship there. But excuse the courtyard outside the temple don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. One very interesting thing about this is John is told to go measure a temple, but the temple as we modernly know it has been destroyed. It does not currently exist. There's actually been several temples that have been built at that location, the temple of God. First one is built by King Solomon where the Holy of Holies enters it you know, an actual palace instead of a tabernacle as it previous was. It gets destroyed um, sometime between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. King Herod orders the temple to be rebuilt. So shortly before the time that Jesus walked the earth and John, the temple has been rebuilt, a second temple, uh, identical to the first, but even bigger in some degrees. That temple gets destroyed around 70 or 80 AD. And so as we modernly live, there is no temple. But we're talking about a future in which there, there is a literal temple of God that has to be rebuilt that we do not currently have. And so John goes to measure it. Uh, it's worth noting, and this is not like a, a biblical fact, but it's worth noting that there's an inner temple it says here, where the people of God and the altar is. And then there's a courtyard that is outside of the temple. Don't measure it because it's given to the nations. They will trample on it for 42 months, which is three and a half years. If you go to the modern site of where the temple is in Jerusalem, it is worth noting that in the outer courtyard, outside of where the inner temple would be, and the you know, there's the Holy of Holies in the outer temple. There is a large building there, and you get five bonus points. If anybody can say what that large building that is there is called. The Dome of the Rock. There in the outer courtyard, currently speaking, is the Dome of the Rock, where it is believed that the Prophet Muhammad had his vision from Allah. There is a Muslim temple in the outer courtyard currently of the called the Dome of the Rock, where a temple will one day be, because we see John here measuring the temple and is ignoring the outer courtyard that is given to the people. We don't know when 
the end of times is. We don't know what will be there, what won't be there, but that is an interesting fact. Um, this temple, however, we do know is not necessarily going to be used for godly purposes. It's talked about several times in the Bible. Jesus specifically says at the end of times when people ask him about it in Matthew 24, 4 through 5, he said, Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you, for in the end of times many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. There will be a person who comes at the end of times claiming to be the Christ. We see in 2 Thessalonians that that person actually goes into the temple of God that is going to be rebuilt. It says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of, work, or object of worship, so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. A person will come, stand in God's temple, we will talk about it in later chapters of Revelation, proclaiming to be God, and he is not God himself. So those are some noteworthy points of this temple that is being built. So that is event one. There is a temple being measured by John that does not currently exist in our time, but will one day exist again. It will be measured. It will be in a noteworthy place for 42 months that major events will take place. And the first event that takes place is actually the two witnesses. And that's what we're gonna look at now. So Revelation 11, verses three through six. It says, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophecy for 1,260 days. Dressed in sackcloth, there are two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. 1260 days is three and a half years. Same period of time. God sends two people to come and witness the gospel of Christ to people as a final chance before the seventh trumpet sounds. We see we're almost to the end. It, it is almost too late for Satan. It is almost too late for Earth. But we have these two witnesses that come down. Uh, it's interesting to note that they are, are dressed in sackcloth, which is clothes of mourning. Uh, for us, most of the time when we go to church, we get dressed. Um, this is a good counter argument I use to my dad because he accuses me of dressing like a homeless person. Uh, he, he says that to me quite regularly. In fact, one time he personally offered, and I'm like a grown man who is married, he took me to the store and bought me clothes so I wouldn't look like a homeless person. But here at the end of times, there are two men sent from God himself, and they're wearing sackcloth. So my birds aren't real t-shirts and my jeans that sometimes have bleach stains because I run a restaurant are not the end of the world. Here, at the end of the world, they are wearing sackcloth and these are men sent by God. But, but what is their message? You know, their message is to 
have 1260 days prophesying, offering the people one final chance to understand who God is, accept that message, repent of their sins, and come back to Christ. And if you see, they are very well protected. Uh, they have a lot of superpower abilities given to them by God. They, they can't be killed because if anyone comes to them, what will happen? Fire literally comes out of their mouths. Literal, I don't know, it seems to be pretty descriptive. I tend to interpret it that way. And they also have other powers. They can turn water into blood. Uh, they have the ability to stop the weather. But you need to understand that these people are coming as one final chance. That is what they are doing. That is how long they are there. Um, that is their message. They do not be very well received. If you look at the modern New Testament church, you'll see that we have lost grasp at times of being God's witness and instead tried to be someone who does not offend people and what they say and what they do. And here we'll see later on that they do get killed after that 1260 days. And the response of the people of the world is they go and celebrate and leave their bodies dead on the, on the street for three and a half days. And they proudly proclaim that these people who have bothered them for three and a half years are gone. If you are going to be God's witness to the same degree that they are, you need to understand that your goal should not to be accepted by everyone, and it should be to turn people to repentance and drawing back to God before it is too late. We are fortunate in this time frame today in the same way as these two witnesses. It is not too late at this moment. We are going to see a time when it is too late, and they don't care about how they're received. It would be ignoring an elephant in the room to not talk about who these people potentially are, because if you ever go down the street and you say, oh, we're studying the book of Revelation, you're going to get a lot of questions of, oh, what do you think about your beliefs in the rapture? Are you a pre-trib guy, post-trib guy, during the tribulation guy? Who do you think the two witnesses are? Those are questions I get asked every time I talk about the book of Revelation, whether it be by youth students or adults. And as Matt said, we do not take a stand on when the tribulation is, or sorry, when the rapture occurs, because it doesn't specifically say. And in the same light, it does not specifically say who these two witnesses are. We don't know if these are people who have never come to earth or we do not know if these are people who have previously lived on earth, but I am, for the sake of helping you understand why there are so many arguments, we're going to talk a little bit about potentially who these people are without me making a claim and trying to get you to believe that these people are certain characters that already exist in the Bible. Is that fair? Okay. Hebrews 9.27. Um, I... I think the last sermon I preached, or two sermons that I preached, uh, I went over how I share the gospel using the Bible, and I always start with the book in Hebrews with 9.27, that you are going to die. It's pointed for everyone to die once. I'm pointing at the screen in the back, but you all can look at the screen in the front. And after that, you face judgment. Uh, biblically, this has been true of every human being on the planet 
with the exception of two. Two people are noteworthily mentioned as not dying in the Bible. Uh, those two men are Enoch and Elijah. Not making a claim, just offering for these purpose of the many discussions that you will hear, why do we claim, people claim, that potentially Enoch and Elijah are the two witnesses? Let's go just a couple chapters later to Hebrews 11, verse 5. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken away, so they did not, he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Enoch specifically mentioned he does not experience death. God took him into heaven to not experience death, despite the fact that the same author said two chapters earlier, everybody on earth is appointed to die once and then to face judgment. Here is one noteworthy exception of that. Uh, next, let's look at Elijah another possible theory of who people claim that the two witnesses are. Second uh, Kings 2, 11 through 12, talks about the end of Elijah's life here on earth. Elijah's a very famous prophet. We're going to look at more verses pertaining to him. But as we look at his death, or sorry, his exodus from earth, uh, it says in verses 11 and 12, as they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. Then Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind. As Elisha watched, he kept crying out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. When he could no longer see him, he took down his own clothes and tore them in two. Elijah is the other noteworthy exception. It says here, A whirlwind came down sucked him up and took him into heaven. And his protege, so to speak, Elisha, was there and witnessed it all. People who make eschatology claims are really sold on the idea of Elijah being one of those two men. Because if you go back to Revelations, Revelation 11.6, uh, you'll see kind of some of the abilities that these two prophets have. It says, they have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with whatever plague whenever they want. Elijah, during his time on earth, uh, is granted by God to possess one of these two abilities that we're talking about. And you see that in 1 Kings 17.1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, from Gilead settlers said to Ahab, as the Lord of God of Israel lives and those in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. So here we see Elijah with the ability to stop the rain and to stop the dew from falling from the sky. And it is noteworthy to know that the two witnesses come for 1,260 days, and it does not rain on earth during this period of time for 1,260 days. So that's one strong reason why you do hear that theory publicly. Uh, unfortunately, there's two witnesses, but a lot of people have three theories. So one of them is wrong, guaranteed, because there's not three witnesses, there's two. Uh, but another person that you're going to hear about is Moses being one of those three men. And go ahead and skip the next slide, Coda. I added that incidentally. 
Uh, but it says here they have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. Um, if you all went to third grade L, you know, Sunday school or you've ever been to vacation Bible school, who is the human that brought God's plagues to earth? Moses, hooray! We all paid attention in Sunday school. Uh, we see that Exodus 7, 20 through 21. Uh, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and his officials. He raised the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad the Egyptians could not drink water from it. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. So we see these two witnesses that have power from God to do two acts that are commonly observed in the Old Testament through Elijah and also through Moses. In fact, we see Elijah and Moses in the same time that Jesus is alive on earth. Matthew 17, 1 through 3, uh, we see the transfiguration, and that's uh, Jesus with Peter and James and John are brought up to a high mountain. So after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So if you ever hear any types of theories as to who these men are, I've presented you with some without making a claim. These men could be men who have never walked the earth before. We do hear enough about them to know that these are two literal men, and those are some theories as to who those men might be. Uh, but what we do know that is very noteworthily important is at the end of times prior to the seventh trumpet sounding, it is not too late for you to turn from your wickedness, repent, listen to God, follow his words, accept him as your Lord and Savior to the same degree that it is not too late for those now. Um, after that, we see these men finally pass away. Let's go back to Revelation 11. It says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And some of the people's tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their bodies to be put in a tomb. So after their three and a half years, a beast comes up, makes war on them, and they die. And they literally lie on the street, like I told you all, for, for three and a half days. They are not buried. They are not given any dignity. Instead, they are just laying there dead for the world to see. Uh, interestingly enough, that's not how it end is, ends. Uh, 7 through 10 said, or sorry, the back half of that it says, those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. As you remember, as people go to rise up against them, they, they possess the ability to breathe fire and, and kill their enemies. So certainly that's something that they gloat over. Um, one thing I do late at night is 
to help me fall asleep, I watch random YouTube videos. For my millennial and Gen Z generation, you all may be the same. My wife falls asleep watching ladies put on makeup. I don't quite do that. I, I watch random YouTube videos. But one of the YouTube videos I always enjoy are, are montages of people who celebrate too soon and then lose. Do you guys ever, <laughs> do you ever see those? Um, like, there'll be pre-fight, you know, hype videos where these guys are like, oh, I'm going to put my opponent in a body bag. He's going down. It's going to last one round. And then you see them in the, like, the, the face-off, and they're like, I'm going to get you. And, you know, they're coming out and showing off, and then they get knocked out. Like, I love those videos. Or, like, when a player on a football team is running for a touchdown and he's five yards away and he's made it 85 yards and he's dancing in the end zone and then somebody tackles him and he fumbles him. Those videos are my absolute favorite. This is a perfect example of an event that hasn't taken place that is exactly like that. We are gloating. These men are dead. They've came. They've called us out for our wickedness. They've tried to draw us back to God. When we go to oppose them, they breathe fire and kill us. But we've won. We've done it. Let's gloat. And then the miraculous happens once again. Revelations 11. I said the yes again. 11 through 14. But after three and a half days the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard from a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell. A thousand people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. These witnesses, after three and a half days, and everybody doing their touchdown dance, come back to life. And they come back to life in the most amazing way. Great fear falls on everyone. Uh, there's a loud voice in heaven drawing them back to them. An earthquake takes place. One-tenth of the city is destroyed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Uh, what's interesting is in the original language, it, it says 7,000 people with names. So these aren't unnoteworthy people. These are, are people that are known to society are killed, people with names, not nameless people. When you're driving to work and you see a random funeral and you stop and you pull over and you say, I don't know that guy's name. These people have names that you know. So this is a major event. It leaves the people terrified. And then finally after that, we hear the seventh trumpet. Revelation eleven fifteen through 17. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God in their thrones fell face down and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and things have begun to reign. The seventh and final trumpet blows, and it is calling the end of times, the end of the world in which 
there is sin, death, and destruction. This is the trumpet saying that the kingdom of, wor- of the world is coming to be the kingdom of Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see a period of destruction throughout the book of Revelation coming, but this seventh trumpet is marking the return of this is all going away now and the kingdom of Christ is coming. So for those in heaven and for those who have accepted Christ, the seventh trumpet is a day of rejoicing. Uh, For those who have rejected Christ, the, the seventh trumpet is a sad, terrible event. Going on through verse 18, it says, The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Hebrews that we talked about, it's called for every man to die and then to face judgment. We see that time has come. The dead are now going to be judged. Those who live on the earth, demons, Satan himself, uh, those who are unbelievers who are destroying the earth, the time is now coming for them to be destroyed. And we see the chapter end with verse 19. This is the temple of God in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings and pearls of thunder, an earthquake and severe hail. So we see in the inner temple of the temple of God, the Ark of the Covenant appears, the Ten Commandments, the Holy of Holies has been reopened. Uh, Interesting time frame. I feel like this works out really well with a lot of our Bible studies. This week is a major Jewish holiday uh, called Yom Kippur. Have any of you all heard of Yom Kippur? Yeah, it's, it's the biggest holiday in the Jewish traditions. Uh, it's given to us those commands in Leviticus 16. We're not going to read through all of them, uh, but it's in a day of atonement when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for our sins. Uh, this is a temple one day that will be rebuilt, and not this third temple that we're referring to at the end of times, but eventually Christ in the new heaven and new earth will make a final temple where he will dwell with us and us with him. And the day of atonement, there's one place in which the Holy of Holies is where the spirit of God is. And the priest would go and pray for all of his sins, repent of all of his sins and go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice for us and our sins. We observe something similar to that as New Testament Christians, and we're actually going to observe that today. Uh, That's known as the Lord's Supper. I don't have the slide, but if you have your Bible with me, go ahead and turn to Matthew 26, verse 26. Matthew 26, verse 26. We're going to read through verse 30. It says, As they were eating... Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many in the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on 
until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is predicting his own death in this moment. He has a final meal with his believers, his disciples that are there with him. He explains to them, my body is going to be broken, my blood is going to be poured. When you do this, whenever you have the supper, think of the fact that I died for you, I died for your sins. You can have eternity with Christ based off of that, based off of your belief in that. Similarly, the two witnesses come to earth and they prophesy at the end of times. Christ has died for you. You just have to accept him as your Lord and Savior, believe in him, and that is your path to avoiding this end times, end of the world, destruction and doom that is coming. I just pray for you, if you're not yourself a believer, uh, that you would take heed to this message and understand that you live an imperfect life uh, because of your imperfections. You live a life that is separated from God. You cannot obtain a way to close that separation on your own. Fortunately, it can only be paid by death, and that death was already paid for you. Jesus lived a perfect life as a sacrifice for us, died on the cross for our sins, was risen again and conquered death, paid that price for us. I just pray that you would accept that today. Uh, With that, we're going to pray, and then we will honor the Lord's Supper. Jesus, we just thank you for, for John and the vision you have given to him. You've offered to us a, a, an understanding of what the end of times is going to look like. And although there, there is some confusion, ultimately it's, it's a greatness that we will see. A, a world without any sin, uh, without any destruction, where we'll get to live with you forever. Uh, thankful to you that you were able to to bridge that separation between us that we caused by our sin, God. Uh, Thank you for dying on the cross, uh, for being willing to paying that price. I just pray, since you died for us, that we would be willing to live with you and for you. Uh, In your name, amen.